I don't I don't know that that we ever in this in this journey ever had a we disagreed wholeheartedly about stuff, but you know, no no fallout and and this mind you with the business not really working for three years. Um so I think it was that. It was it was that how how easy it, it was and 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 I think still is and and how I would, I would say how little attention this relationship requires. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I think also, I think both of us have a, a, a kind of quality in common, which is that even if we do have quite heated arguments about how something should have been done or something should be done, I wouldn't say argument, heated discussions, we should call them, um, about how something should be done. Both of us are willing to then take it away and then think about it. And then actually, if we realize we're wrong, absolutely do do 180 degrees on this and not kind of stick by what we think is a, uh, to prove our, there's no kind of, that neither of us have a pride in making a decision um, that we that we thought originally. Mm. Um, I mean, other than the, I told you so, uh, comment. We, we do both enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Exige International. Exige is an executive search and recruitment training business that Fiona and myself have been working on for the last 19 years. We provide technology and innovation-focused executives to the insurance and wider financial services sector with a focus on the UK and Swiss markets. If you have a search or you'd like to discuss improving your recruitment and interviewing process, please visit our website, Exige International. Exige is spelled E-X-I-G-E. And tell the team William sent you. I'm also very happy to introduce our new sponsor, Crankhouse Coffee. Crankhouse Coffee is run by Dave Stanton, producing some of the UK's most exciting coffees, available for dispatch all over Europe. With a host of single origin and hard to find coffee, expertly roasted with care and attention, Crankhouse Coffee is a true gem of a business. I've been drinking this coffee for years, and I am thoroughly happy to have them as a sponsor of the show. So just head over to crankhousecoffee.co.uk, that's crankhousecoffee.co.uk, and you can use the code William to receive a special discount. Okay, well... Matt Wardle, Nick Sewer, thank you very much for joining me here today on Search of Purpose. Nick, Matt, you're from the InsureTech Casco, and we're here today to really kind of explore a bit about the topic of working together as a CEO and a CTO, building an InsureTech, and all the things in between that we can explore. So yeah, over to you guys. Maybe you could introduce yourselves first of all and tell us a bit about Casco and your, your backgrounds, please. Matt, do you want to go first? Sure, yeah. So uh, I am, as mentioned, Matt. My name is Matt. Um, I'm the CTO and, um, yeah, we're both founders of CAFCO. Um, we started this about kind of five years ago. Before that, though, I had um, initially a startup and tech background, so development, uh, working in tech company in, in London. Um, then I moved to Accenture, where I got this kind of still a bit of development, but this kind of working in a huge company with way too many people in way too many countries and way too bit outsourced, et cetera, experience, um, which helped me kind of learn how to run and manage these large teams. And then, um, yeah, Nick reached out and I think um, we, we decided to do this and I think he can give you a bit of an intro about how that 
went down. <laughs> um, yeah, William, first of all, thanks for taking the time and, you know, um, um, yeah, helping us maybe, you know, tell, tell our story. Really excited to be here. Um, I'm, I'm Nick. I'm, I'm Matt's co-founder um, based out of Hamburg, Germany. My background is, is insurance, family business in insurance, studied insurance, <laughs> uh, worked in insurance, uh, family business, brokerage business, did some strategy consulting. And in 2014, um, kind of had the idea. It was, I was 30. It was kind of, you know, why not start something, um, on my own? Um, always wanting to take over the family business and having realized a couple of years before that that was not uh, for me for different reasons. And then reached out to to Matt, um, who um, we've been roommates at university. Um, I would say we've we've kept in touch, but also not overly closely. But um, I would say, and you know, Matt, <laughs> please correct me if I'm I'm wrong. There was a level there was a level of respect in our household dynamic where I tried to control everything but couldn't control him um so i think that garnets a level of 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 respect on 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 both ends because you know at the end of the day when you when you're building something it's very good that you know each other it's very good that you like each other and that you trust each other but it's also important that you have the same i would say work ethic value situation and that was certainly something that we felt we 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 had experience in the years before um and so i i reached out to him and and actually the story in a in a shorter sense kind of went we wanted we didn't have the i we we didn't approach this in a sense insurance is a 5 trillion uh, you know dollar market uh, it's broken let's fix it it was more let's build a company um that we want to work in long term ourselves. So we focused more on getting the dynamics of the team right and um, started working with a bunch of friends, with my sister in a kind of testing environment. So, um, and I think we did all the mistakes that you can do um, in that in that period, but it was more on a kind of project basis. We didn't, um, we still were working, uh, me in Accenture, me in the consulting uh, firm. But after this, we realized this is certainly not a not a great idea. We had a quote app, Quotes of Glory. It didn't make as much money as we thought. Um, but what, what came out of it was we worked as a team. Um, and our, I would say, inclination in the beginning was corroborated that we can trust each other, that we can lean on each other, and that we have the same, I would say, goals, aspirations um, with us so we can take this to the next step. That's kind of how it how how it all started. So you you and lived you lived be- together before you got married, effectively. The, yes, yeah, and story it, exactly. And you know, it's it no, and I think that's actually a good point. Whereby you know, it's it's you know, you you kind of date, then you live together, then you get you know, then you get married, or and then you have a child. I mean, it doesn't have to be in that setting, but it it makes sense to to have some form of joint journey mm. before you mm. you glue yourself. Uh, you know, hip think, to hip. Well, look, I think know, a lot of our a lot of our friends found it interesting because uh, while they we'd obviously known each other for a long time and had lived together, most people didn't know us in that part of our life. Like Nick's Nick's wife at the time didn't know us at that part of our life. So all their experience of the two of us together was essentially stagnant. <laughs> and so when yeah. we said starting a business with that guy, that doesn't he just 
Just need us go to nightclubs in Barcelona. There is a little bit more, <laughs> more to them. Well, this is an yeah, interesting true. point because I, I know. That, I mean, honestly, that the idea of selecting your co-founder and selecting your co-founder well is incredibly important to the success of the business, and and also on the mind of a lot of people who are starting their companies. So you know, understanding each other and understanding each other's sort of way of looking at the world, I can see as being you know really really valuable. Um, so when you when you decided to come together and sort of start working together, what were the things that you that you focused on that you kind of helped you think it was actually going to be what was going to work right between you two of you? So, so I guess the the I mean we we kind of took it step by step, right? Uh, but I think the one thing that we did from the beginning, especially before we decided to do the jump. Um, we were, and maybe I was, and and uh, Matt just uh, agreed. I was very adamant about having a fixed number of working hours allocated to this project. I didn't care so much whether it was during the week or after the week. And I said, you know, let's build this. But what this means, everyone ten hours per week, hmm. um, because I was I wanted to make sure we didn't know how long things took, and we didn't know what the output would be. But it was very much about that contribution, because everyone likes to build a company in a bar, and then you know, <laughs> uh, but then it's you know Saturday, and you have a tough working week, and that actually churned out quite a few uh, people who were very interested in the project at the time, but couldn't commit. And I think it's that it's that commitment um, um, to the thing, and I think that is what um, kind of um, always persisted because we our journey was also not a journey of a home run. You know, we had a lot of iterations. Um, I mean, if I look back at, at our journey, um, it all made sense, and there was so much excitement, and you know, it's it felt like each step was kind of getting closer to where we wanted to go, and that I still mm. very much feel like that. But kind of looking from the outside in, um, you know, revenue didn't come as quickly as we thought. Business model didn't come as quickly as we thought. And understanding didn't come as quickly as we thought. So some people was like, why didn't you give up? And, you know, I think it's it's that both of us were in the same part of our life. Our 30s, we, um, we, we had the freedom to do it, but also the aspiration uh, to do it. And, you know, we just kind of kept at it. Uh, whilst I would say probably others would have given up and have. Um, I, I think it's fair to say we also found quite quickly that our this we kind of we knew we knew we'd have complementary skill sets. I've always had a tech background and running running teams background. Nick's always had a business very business focused and insurance background. So we knew that our skill sets were complementary. Um, but we also found quite quickly that actually we worked together both on the skill sets we assumed would be complementary, but also the others. Go so I I gave quite a lot of influence on how we, what we should build as a business. And how that should work, and Nick gave a lot of influence on how we should build the products and how that should work. Um, so we actually ended up, we found that it actually worked extremely well. And probably, I would say, if anything, I would actually say better than we expected. <laughs> yep. Then what was the thing that surprised you the most about working together? What would you? Th what surprised you the most that was the most difficult part of working together? I would say the thing that surprised me the most how not difficult it was and still is. Um, yeah, we... <laughs> I, I mean, and, and Matt can, it has, I'm, I'm an antagonistic person. You know, I, I like to take, I, I don't like things sweltering. I, I like to take things hands on. Uh, I, it's not that I, oh, I can't help it. It's just, I just go into, into uh, a circular, uh, thought process and I just need to, I just need to fix stuff. Um, so, and I felt 
I don't I don't know that that we ever in this in this journey ever had a we disagreed wholeheartedly about stuff, but you know, no no fallout and and this mind you with the business not really working for three years. Um so I think it was that. It was it was that how how easy it, it was and 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 I think still is and and how I would I would say how little attention this relationship requires. <laughs> yeah, I think and I think also I think both of us have a, a, a kind of quality in common, which is that even if we do have quite heated arguments about how something should have been done or something should be done, I wouldn't say argument, heated discussions, we should call them, um, about how something should be done. Both of us are willing to then take it away and then think about it. And then actually, if we realize we're wrong, absolutely do do 180 degrees on this and not kind of stick by what we think is a, uh, to prove our, there's no kind of, that neither of us have a pride in making a decision um, that we that we thought originally. Mm. Um, I mean, other than the "I told you so" uh, comment, we, we do both enjoy. <laughs> yeah, You're that um, Slack snapshot. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, yeah. you know, it, it, so that kind of meant that most things, because we have a similar outlook on things, most things we can always find an agreement on because the goal has always been the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I so once the information is the same, everything can align again. <laughs> So I hear from that this this idea that you know disagreement happens, but there needs to be enough humility to reconcile and be able to climb down from these sort of positions of either you know certainty or ego to to realize that the mission is more important. And well, I'm I'm interested to know about innovation and how that is so important to innovation because you guys are creating something new, something that you know isn't certain in any way, and you're helping companies do the same thing with Casco. So I, I would just sort of like to know about, have you reflected on how important that is, particularly in the innovation environment? And you know, what advice should we give to people when they're in these highly creative environments and how they get through that? I mean, I think within innovation, it's actually the same thing. You know, at the end of the day, it's have an opinion, have strong opinions sometimes, uh, you know, whether we should build a dashboard, whether we should build a feature, whether we should do something, how it should work. Validate it as much as we can against our customers, which we say as much as we can, because if you're speaking to someone, the kind of startup terms we use might always not be the most translatable thing to a business context of a, in a, you know, in a traditional insurer. Um, but then when we realize what they want, we again can change that plan immediately and quickly. Um, our product has been one, I think, unlike probably a lot of other companies, our product, we never built it in terms of, we know exactly what we're going to build on day one. We're going to design this thing and it's perfect and no one can tell us anything different about it. This is what we're going to build for the next three years. And then when it's done, we'll sell it to insurers. It was never, ever like that. It was always, let's do this one thing with an insurer. We need to get, they want to sell this insurance policy. We need that in a database. Cool. Great. Done that part. Now they actually need to log in and see that somewhere. All right. So we need to build a dashboard. It was always built very, very iteratively. I suppose you could say the whole platform is built in an agile way. Um, always responding to demand. We, even now, we barely ever will build a feature that we believe is a feature we need to build. Um, of course, we do around things about security and you know data storage and backups and all this kind of stuff. When it comes to features in terms of how a insurance renewal will work, how a uh, a second payment gets taken, how you you know these kind of how it's always from what a customer says to us. We say, okay, we've spoken to a few customers. Here's how they all think it should work. Now let's put that together, and that's how we innovate. <laughs> yeah, and I think I mean personally, I kind of having having 
kind of started this with with Matt in the you know 2015-2016 innovation theater aspect of insurance technology. I personally try not to use the word innovation um, simply because it creates this aspiration to be novel in every sense, um, which I don't care for. I don't, novelty in itself has no value to me whatsoever. It's, um, it's around, can we do something better? Can we, can we achieve a goal better? Um, can we get there incrementally? And I would even say when people say truly disruptive innovation, also happened step by step. The light bulb was not invented in a big bang, but through you know thousand ways that it did work. And so I think this truly iterative thing, testing it again, again, again. Um, and sometimes it's not a, with the customer. Sometimes it's with your corporate customer. And and having that curiosity, um, I wouldn't even say humility, just that understanding that it's you know there's so many other people who know certain aspects of this better than you and you'd be stupid not to um tap into that uh, willingly and so i think it's that applied deployment i like the word entrepreneurial because it also gives you the sense of resource scarcity about trade-offs and just having that wheel churn throughout the day every day <laughs> Um, I think has defined us, has made us probably the most efficient, capital efficient company in our space, because um, we uh, barely had to do anything that was not that we had to throw away afterwards. Yeah, and I think I think it especially comes back to the fact that we are, in some sense, as a company, a middleman company. Our company is a middleman. <laughs> um, you know, we sit between insurance companies and their customers. Um, we provide the technology that allows the interaction between the two of them. Um, but that does mean that when it comes to innovation, we can't do anything that they, that all parties wouldn't want. <laughs> you know, and at the end of the day, in insurance in general, when you look at what innovation really means, most of it is just make a much, much nicer experience, make a much nicer website, make it so you can do a cancellation or a claim via an app. You know, make a, you know, it's not like, you know, you could make a home insurance where you just roll a webcam through your sitting room and it takes a picture of every item in the room and does some kind of magic and says, right, you need this much cover. But how much work are you going to put in to do that versus the fact of just saying, mm, I think I need about 10,000 cover, you know, <laughs> probably comes to about the same thing in the end. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in this idea that, you know, the reaction to the word innovation. And I do think there is a bit of innovation burnout, the concept of innovation and, and what it means. And um because innovation is very difficult. It's creation, creativity is very difficult. Um, and so if we keep labeling them up in these ways that people then become almost allergic to in reaction because they associate so much failure, so much lack of ability to deliver, maybe that's where this reaction to language comes from. And I mean, I hear in both of you that you've somehow figured out, which is very difficult for people, how to communicate between the two of you how they get stuff done. And, and we're talking about language, we're talking about innovation, we're talking about entrepreneurship, these words, these themes, these meanings for us, back to what clients want. And, and the language you use is very important. The, the way that we think about the achievements we have are very important. And the way you overcome problems is through communication as well. So I can, I can see how this is all swirling together. So maybe, maybe I'll take it away from the philosophical now and maybe I could just focus it a bit on some of the practical. And I, I'd like to know, you know, your thoughts on how you sort of manage 
what Casco is trying to do. So how do you manage the integration between new technology and legacy <clears throat> systems to achieve an outcome? Because that seems to be a really interesting challenge at the moment. I think, um, so I think, you know, my view on this, and again, Nick, correct me if, if you have a different opinion. Um, and this is something we chat about frequently, you know, the concept of legacy technology. But the thing to say about legacy technology and the key, in our mind, the key detail is that it's not bad. <laughs> um, so people might think a legacy system is a terrible old broken thing that needs to be replaced. That's how a lot of startups view, view legacy. The reality is legacy systems are massive, massive, complex beasts that have been built over 30 years to do every single thing in running a, a corporation, essentially, running an insurance company. So this, in, in the context of insurance, this will obviously mean not just selling policies, but making sure the commissions are paid to all the agents, making sure that reinsurance is doable and calculate, making sure that calculations to the government are done correctly, reporting. All, there's a huge suite of things in there. And if one looked at that, you'd say, Christ, we're never going to build that. And we're not trying to build that. That's the reality. We're not saying we're going to do it all better because the reality is it does so much and there's nothing wrong with what it does. Where, it, where we look at it, us and as a new technology stack and, and kind of innovative technology stacks, I suppose you could say, is can they do one of those things better um, or cheaper, whatever, whichever is better, which is in some sense can be better. Can it do it better? Can it do it cheaper? Can it do it quicker, more efficiently? You know, whatever you're looking for. And that's, I think, where platforms like ours come in, where we say, actually, we make a platform that does quite a small thing in comparison to a legacy system. And in our case, that enables the creation of these web flows and APIs to sell insurance products and kind of you know, make that very quick and easy for everyone involved. So we can probably do that better. And so when you're the CIO of an insurer, what you're actually looking at is the choice of which technology stack is better. Does our legacy one do this really well? Does the Casco or another platform do that really well. And actually, often, as you point out, the answer is actually both. You know, in our case, our platform is the best platform to quickly launch new insurance policy products to manage these policies in. But when it actually comes to then taking that information back, back into their systems, we do do that as well, because then they can handle, you know, their agent uh, commission calculations, their referral calculations, their this, their that, the other, to make sure all their systems also work. And so, the two systems are completely complementary and not, they're not mutually exclusive. So would you say then that getting an adoption of new technology over legacy systems or in complementary is proving then that it works, that there's a point to it? Coming back to your earlier point, you know, we don't just need novel, we need functional. I think, I think that's the key point. So <laughs> legacy or startup, new or old, um, doesn't really mean anything. I, I think the, the, key, the key point, you know, does it help? And um, you know what's the what's the what's the what's the value that is being created? Now, it could be a traditional business case. It could be, but you know, who's where do we create value? And value usually comes from you know making it more convenient, uh, reducing the costs, uh, scaling it up. Uh, so there's you know um, um, that's really the the main focus. And I would say the the key point of making this work is to be both things be oh, three things number one be able to have a have a level of redundancy in the system so when matt says we only do this one particular thing i would say sometimes but actually we do a whole lot sometimes we, we do become... we do a whole number of one particular things <laughs> okay but but sometimes we can create almost an entire insurance company around a singular product 
right? It would be an NGA from the techno sec because then we can insulate that entire venture, that product from any kind of resource constraints or priorities on the internal roadmap. And that we, so, and we can then prove that this business, that this digital proposition, um, whatever that is, works and we can drive through customers and then we can build up the case of either expanding our horizontally, vertically, clipping off part of our backend and then using more functionality because it's it's not about backend or legacy or something. It's it's around, you know, how much functionality do I need if I have a customer stream of 10, a thousand, ten thousand, a million. That's really where these things kind of come together. And so you need number one, you need redundancy to get things going in an independent way. You then also though need um, modularity. So that means sometimes they don't want to have a redundant system um, because they already have, they just want to have a front end or they just want to have a rater or they just want to have this one particular thing. So you need to be able to deploy your technology in a, in a, in a modular manner. And then it needs to be open in the sense that you don't have to recreate the wheel. For example, is payments a, an insurance specific problem? Hell no. E-commerce has solved the issue of payments. So you'll inject that technology. Do, do any of the insurance companies use payment service provider? No. They run their own billing. They run their own dunning, their own collection. And you kind of go, can they, you know, can they do this better as Amazon? I don't think so. So you'll, you know, whether you use Amazon Pay or something else, but you'll then tap into that. So you tap into, into um, you know, services that might not be, um, they might be horizontally perfect and we'll kind of verticalize them for, um, for insurance. So yes, you know, appreciate legacy because it's a, it's a whole lot of functionality that you'll never want to rebuild. Um, and then focus on redundancy, modularity and openness. Mm. Thank you for that. I just want to talk a little bit more for now, just about the CTO and the modern CTO, because mm-hmm. I can imagine that when people are coming to Casco, they're looking for some leadership on technology, um, but they're not just coming for the technologies we already talked about. They're really coming for a product. So I'd like to kind of talk a bit about like this, the modern CTO and how they could be product orientated and maybe just get your thoughts on that. Because, you know, you've already mentioned that you're the tech guy, you know, you're the commercial guy, but that doesn't seem to exist anymore. You've got to be both. You've got to have a commercial focus on what you're doing, right? So yeah, maybe you could just tell me a bit about your thoughts on the modern CTO and being and having product at the center of what you do. Yeah, I think, I mean, we actually, interestingly, when we started, we when we kind of started giving people titles and giving people ranks and all these things, which it wasn't day one, it wasn't our first exercise, let's all get a title. Um, but when we started doing that, we originally kind of actually thought of product as something that sat under under sales, actually. So it'd be kind of sales and business, and then underneath it's that product and tech sat as a kind of somewhat separate entity in our, in our world. And if you looked at who reported to who in an org chart, that's how it would look. Um, but we quickly realized that that actually was a mistake because actually the person who knew the most about what we were actually building, how it actually worked and what we were actually trying to achieve as from a product was me. Um, and the salespeople in our company, the product that was more a means to an end. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that uh, when they spoke to clients, the client doesn't actually really mind how how it worked behind the scenes. They just they want something to happen. <laughs> they don't mind how it really does it. Um, and actually, that meant that we have always very very much meant that product is very much my role, what we're building. But then Nick 
and the sales team, they were what we would call the believable experts within our company on insurance. So they are in some sense the client of, of, of the tech side of the business, which is the product side. And the sales side is actually the client. They say, this is how I think insurance should work. This is how this works. So there's a lot of collaboration between us all on this. I mean, constantly having meetings saying, you know, Nick says we need this feature. We go away and design what we think is this feature. We take it back. And he says, that's not going to, you kind of built it in a very e-commerce way. It's great. But actually, that's not really how an insurer will ever think about that. We'll look at that. They'll always think of it like this. And so it's a very kind of, very fluid process, I think, between, between the two. Um, one of the things I would also kind of note on that is that we, at the moment, don't sell our technology stack as a technology stack. Um, we, are, we sell products to insurers. So we sell the ability, what it does is what we sell. We don't yet sell it itself. Now, we do look to move into that in the next um, couple of years to sell the whole thing, to the, take it to a CIO of an insurer and say, hey, here's what our product can do. Right now, we take the product teams of an insurer and say, hey, you want to do some insurance products? Use our, you know, use our platform. And that will actually also change a bit how these things work another, in another time. Because, if, of course, if you're talking to a CIO in an insurer, they will care more about bells and whistles and features and various security things because that's what keeps them up at night. You know, it's, you know, it's, will this thing, will the data will be safe? Will it be secure? That's what they'll be thinking about. It's a very core thing. Whereas when you're talking to a product person who wants, who's just seen Lemonade do some cool thing in the States, um, what they're thinking about is not how the database works. They're thinking about, I want to do this cool thing. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think, I think adding to it, I think you, you need to have in in an enterprise business, I think there needs to be a shared responsibility around product. Um, it should definitely sit, with, you know, um, within the text much stronger on the tech side because you'll in an enterprise setting, you usually you have a product, but you sell solutions usually, and you need to abstract what their problem is. And make sure that you're not um, starting to customize, um, that you're going the configuration route, and that you can productize that that delivery. Um, so it's very important about which way to 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 kind of reach uh, towards that solution. However, I would say when when kind of people ask us about what makes Casco different, my answer, and that is obviously because I have more view about that part of the business, I say. I'm very certain that we have a best-in-class tech stack. However, I do not know whether our tech stack is better or worse than any of our competitors. Uh, I have no idea. I'm, I'm sure that depending on what they've solved, ours is better at the things that we have seen and theirs is better at the stuff that they have seen and there'll be different um, connotations but it's, and some will be way off. But, you know, on the best in class, I'd say, you know, there's pretty good tech out there. What we see really differentiate us as a company is having product at its core within sales, within delivery, within tech, whereby we have so many discussions with junior salespeople around design a process, understand this thing, understand how this flows. This is not a it's it's almost like a decentralized flow. It now then flows together to Matt. And sometimes I come in, but it's it's not like we um that anyone in this company can get away without having to explain to one of our customers how to achieve their goals. Yeah. Um and I think that is really what drives because it's it's painful. You need to make sure that it's not overboardingly professional servicey, which it's not. So it's 
productizing that process by looking out on repeatable patterns and pattern recognition. I think that is really what sets us apart, which is why we can quote a complex proposal probably 20 times faster and more accurate, probably anyone in the market. And that allows us to spot opportunities at a lower price point, that allows us to deliver value at a lower price point, that allows us to shorten sales cycles. That allow that has allowed us to deploy our technology, you know, after three years within 25 insurance companies in eight countries on 70 products. No one has ever done that. But I think it's not just a technology, it is having product permeate the entire yeah. company and it's painful to teach. So how do you, uh, that was good my question actually, do you have a set of language or questions that you use to challenge back and forth between each other that you can teach to people? How do you do that? I think the short answer is no, that we don't have a codified language that we could write down in a manual or manifest and say, if you do these things, then everything will be peachy. I think what we do do, though, is repetition, 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 repetition. Matt and I have found a way to communicate because we have communicated thousands of times <laughs> around similar evolving pieces of a topic. Um, and we have built the muscle, the, the, the memory on on how to do that and that is by yeah we just put in the reps it's like how do you get fit you need to go to the gym and put in the reps that weird electronic belly fat thing that i've seen on you know the television that just doesn't work you need to put in the reps (laughs) and uh, we needed to put in the reps as well Uh, i think i think something i would say there as well is that it really the attitude that permeates company is the attitude that comes from the top. You know, the, the culture kind of values really at the end of the day, you can install them, but mostly they come top down. Um, and the fact is, is that Nick Roll is a sales CEO, I think you could say. His main role in the company is sales. Um, but he's, as we've kind of discussed, extremely interested in how the product works and is built. This creates a culture within the sales team that it's also required that they have a view of how the product works. They can't be these kind of salespeople you you have traditionally who say, oh, I've got no idea how this thing works, right? Like if someone says, oh, I don't understand this thing, I'll explain it from a tech point of view. And then the expectation is within a few months of working that they will actually understand how our platform works. We're not allowing this kind of, oh, it's just a tech guy will sort that out. So it's almost like we have a distributed product team, which involves kind of me running it, but um, and a product person who does the designs, but then the whole team, both business and tech side, are the ones deciding how a feature should should work. <laughs> no, and I, th- and I think that's true. And, you know, we sit down and, and I think that's right. I get very impatient when someone kind of says, oh, that's why it's like, but why? Well, I don't know. It's like, so you didn't question whether that was a good proposition? Is, would you, you know, it's, would you buy it? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, we just went through the pricing. It's like the, the, the pricing structure is there to help you on things. that we, It doesn't alleviate you from thinking for yourself on whether you would recommend this to, to the client. And I think that's kind of what permeates our, our company. Now, I think it's we, we will never be where I think we should be. I think that's just part of the game. But I think we, we, we will try. 
and we will invest in in having these discussions. We have very we 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 talk a lot to each other about stuff. Um, and we made a very we decided to to educate to recruit and educate our own talent. Now that might change. We're forty person company, but we're we're willing to to deliver that education because I don't think you can poach that that easily in the market because that is I haven't haven't seen it with that many other organizations uh, to that level. I'm I'm hearing from you, and I'm really quite interested in this part about is it the creative tension that needs to take place and like in hearing you there is this acceptance of like creative tension and you know in innovation there is this idea that you need to have an appropriate level of tension between control systems and creative systems and um maybe that's you know when i asked you the question about the language and such maybe it's more values would you agree with it that if i was to say that you are promoting a culture of sort of assertive tension that you're okay, it's okay to disagree it's okay to inquire it's okay not to know and to challenge Ab- yeah. absolutely and we just recently it's funny that you mentioned that we recently uh, we did a 360 feedback uh, session and you know we got actually our feedback ourselves and part of that feedback was um we you know that there was an argument um, around um, tactics and, and measures between um, our um, CEO of Sergey and myself, who kind of do the thing, and then and that shouldn't be the case because you know we should kind of show a united front uh, in front of the people, and you know it would show uh, what's the the other side of unity, the the, the other word for you, yeah. you know the the contrarian for for unity, and then we kind of looked at it and I was like. Um, the, I will give a conditional yes or conditional no to that assessment. Um, yes, it shouldn't happen that two people in a meeting of eight capture that meeting and discuss something that they should bilaterally discuss by wasting six people's time. Absolutely, that should not happen. Mm. A very strong no that we should not be able to argue about a case and trying to do, pre- I've seen this in consulting, you know, you do a pre-meeting, meet, 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 and then you go to the board meeting, nothing is discussed anymore. Every, everything is already done. It's, it's a very expensive uh, process. So, and we communicated that to the team. It's to say, no, um, it is okay to argue. Um, it is, and kind of following from that, it's also, it was then about, you know, about providing feedback because then the other side says, yeah, we want feedback, right? So it's good to argue on feedback. And then people, yeah, but I give an opinion, but then it's not heard. It's like, well, whether that is good or bad depends a little bit on the opinion because <laughs> it, it could be a great opinion or it could be a shit opinion. You know, it depends really on, <laughs> on, on, on the situation. So we kind of, and this is something I like, from you know Ray Dalio um, principles, you know the believable expert, and it's to say, um, if you have an opinion, it's it's not a, a democratic process, it's not a show of hands. It's whoever is the believable expert in something, and that kind of comes from experience, etc. So if you feel that your opinion is not heard, try to make a case why you're the believable expert in something, or get some data. But at the very least, you need to be able and request a why, mm. an understanding of why, because usually that why explanation helps even the believable actually kind of go, are you actually right? I, you know, so, so I think that is something that is certainly the case and it makes people uncomfortable. 
So it sounds to me like you do have a set of language pressures. Maybe it's the why. Maybe it's the why. That's what it is. Maybe, Quick, maybe write it, it down. is. Yeah. Somebody write this down. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> well, I, I, I think you've highlighted a number of things there that I like to touch on. Is Ray Dalio's book um, Principles is a fantastic read, particularly um, Bridgewater is famed for its culture of radical honesty, radical openness, and transparency, and 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 that that comfort with discourse which can be difficult for to hear and i think if you are going to be an organization that's going to be able to react to what is happening around you at any time you need to be honest and honesty can hurt can hurt our our feelings can hurt this this identity that we've built and um, maybe that i believe also i believe that reason that innovation fails in a lot of companies is because of the 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 is because of the failure that's inherent within innovation to create means failure because you never get it right first time and and that's really bruising for the ego it can spe- it can cost a lot of money and it can be really difficult for relationships um so i'm hearing from you that you maybe are, are comfortable with with combative conversation but in but always maybe perhaps so the way, how do you deal with that as a fallout so people get their feelings hurt how have you guys dealt with that? Like the the resulting feelings aspect of that. Matt, maybe you want to say is the guy who's maybe on the receiving end of the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I think um, honestly I do think it, it, it we, for us it does work fine. I don't think people do get their feelings that hurt over it. We're not um, because generally, as I say, once people do share at some point during conversation the same set of information about the situation at hand. In the case of discussing a product feature, it's almost certain that I have a very strong opinion how it should be built. Nick has a very strong opinion how insurers will look at it and says they will not think of it like that. Like they do not have a clue what you're talking about. They're not a tech company. Um, once you have a shared understanding of these things, then it's actually the decisions made quite easily. Um, and it's not that hard. So I think we have, we've tried to code. So in some sense, what we said earlier is wrong. Yes, we've tried to codify it recently with the thing that Nick said to say, who's the believable expert? what to do if you didn't feel like it was heard, but you can go to the person again and ask them why. If you still don't like that reason, you can then propose an experiment you'd like to do to try and prove yourself right. So you say, actually, I'm going to spend, if it's, a how to, if it's from a sales, how to reach out to someone on LinkedIn or a tech question of whether something's faster on something in Amazon Web Services and something else, go and run a two-hour experiment if you think you can. And if you're right, we'll all happily <laughs> change our tune. Um, but I think having a process by which you know, the process between me and Nick has always been very different and has always just kind of essentially, I would say, just worked. Um, and probably why this company and why we have, we don't have answers to say what the biggest problems we've had between us because it has just worked. <laughs> um, I think it's more important actually when dealing with more junior colleagues and probably especially when more junior colleagues are dealing with either me or Nick who are, you know, are the founders of the business and things um, who are not going to feel quite as comfortable challenging a uh, approach. Um, that they have that, this kind of framework by which they can then try and get their opinion more heard if they think it wasn't enough. Mm. Um, so they don't feel like, oh, I had a really great idea, and they said no, and that was it, end of conversation. They feel like there's actually a recourse, a step, steps that can be taken if they care and if they <laughs> about it enough. Okay. Yeah, and I, I would, I would, I would kind of add to that. I think the dynamic between you know, Matt and I, or, you know, Sag and Matt and I is, is, is different than to, to, to other, other colleagues, um, for obvious reasons. I think from, from my personal journey, I would also say, how do you make sure 
um, to to strike the right balance by dealing with a lot of negative feedback. So I would say, you know, when I started out, that was I totally ignored the the uh, well, I wouldn't not not intentionally, but I certainly overlooked the 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 costs um, to a team dynamic, to respect, to trust um, by not just what you deliver, but also how you deliver it, um, who you deliver it to, in which setting do you deliver it? Do you deliver it in public? Do you deliver it in private? So I would say I've come, um, I've just learned through mistakes um, and reflection and have people telling me, you know, this is not okay um, to kind of get better at it. I'm, I'm certainly a much more tactful person than I used to be. I'm probably also not the most tactful person on the planet by by a long shot. So I'm kind of within my within the realm of of my okay of, level of tact. Okay level. Okay of level yes. of tact. Yes. You know. Well, you know. In the, uh, I want to be in the middle of the normal distribution. <laughs> I feel like one thing that Nick kind of discovered because coming from he came from a consultancy background where let's say there is. A slight and a German consultancy background at that. I think there may be, could be say there was less thoughts about people's feelings and how information was delivered, it sounded like, um, than maybe common in a UK startup. Um, and I think one of the things I noticed him changing was actually the realization that not only did it upset people if he approaches it in a slightly more snappy approach, let's say, but also it wastes a load of time. Because mm. if someone goes away and it's being sad and sulky and annoyed by it, that's just a lot of time gone because they're probably not being particularly productive at that point. And then you have to have a whole other meeting to deal with this thing. Um, so actually, I think almost making process by which you, if you do end up resorting, if anyone ends up resorting to old ways and snapping, just send them a Slack message after and say, oh, I'm really sorry. I got heated, but I didn't mean to. I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. <laughs> yeah. And well, it's, it's... quickly resolve these things rather than just do it over, let it build up and just assume that everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good. It's, it's the, there is definitely, I mean, I work internationally, so I'm both, I'm British, I work in Swiss markets, in German market, French market. Culture is a big thing here. And I, I think you touch on that. And I don't think it's maybe a surprise for anyone to hear that maybe the Germans could be a little bit more direct <laughs> in, in culture and British can be a little bit more flowery at times and, and talk around topics. And Well, I mean, one third of our office is in Latvia. So uh, <laughs> if you want to talk about directness, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, well, that is an interesting. You are wrong. You are being stupid. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't have done. <laughs> so, so that is an interesting point. You are an international company, like truly an international startup working across different cultures. Which we talked about. So, so the the culture that you have in resolving the problems is important. There is there anything else that you found would, to be helpful when you're working? You know, I would say that we. I mean, I guess I would say that we've tried to fall back in most cases to what is in general. The friendliest culture, which is probably the British startup culture, because it takes over from the American startup culture, um, and kind of try to use that as the normal company one. So you know, it's, a, it's a general framework to say that maybe it is completely acceptable in a Latvian company or to say, you know, you're being an idiot. You're being an idiot <laughs> to someone in a meeting. But as far as we, it doesn't really work when it crosses borders. And I think most people have kind of accepted that uh, on all sides of things. But I do think. There are cultural things where we realize we can't impose our, not impose, but we can't use one set of cultural values and assume it's the same. Um, I think when it comes to, well, when it comes to lots of things with the Latvian team, they have a different way of thinking about things. Um, and even things when it comes to a social thing. You know, initially when we started this, we had complaints that the UK office had a really amazing, uh, 
work, social culture, people going for beers and things like that. And the Latvian office didn't have this. And we tried to initially kind of inject, copy and paste our UK things and just say, right, that should work in Latvia. When it never did. Um, because that's just not the go for a pint with all your colleagues after work thing doesn't exist particularly there. So you can't inject that <laughs> into a company. So actually you have to figure out what works for them, you know, and for them it was slightly less frequency, but much more organized events. They wanted something more like they wanted to go to a, a cooking class, to a this. They wanted something more, an organized social thing. That's what companies in Latvia do. So that's what they do do. <laughs> you know, you can't just assume that anything works in one place works in across across the world. And I mean, yeah, and I think I think at the end of the day, it's it's what what I've noticed in in our company, which what's quite interesting. Um, we we use the word fair a lot, and it's interesting for me to see whenever new colleagues join, because um, I noticed that they use, didn't use that specific terminology before and it's like yeah fair so how much that even means you know i i, I don't i don't know but it kind of it has to the point where we kind of say what is what's fair you know what what can be expected um in 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 this situation what's the fair approach and we do try to get back to a level of fairness a level of transparency and kind of say if this decision and we have a super transparent company in the sense of financials, compensation, anything. We report more to our um, employees and our colleagues to than to our investors. Um, and it all kind of comes to, down to transparency. And so if I were to make this decision in public, which I am, because if anyone asks, how could I, uh, how could I explain this? Um, and so we, we spend a lot of time around this. Um, and I think it's a, I think it's a worthwhile investment. It takes a lot of work, but I think it um, it it works down the line. And so I think it's that value of about transparency and trust. But um, the flip side, I mean, the value to me is is grit. You know, it's grit and respect. I, I like this point maybe just to sort of move to like a COVID world and as an organization, because one sure. of the things I'm hearing all the time at the moment is the new working environment and how that's affecting <laughs> companies. And um, you've used, you know, a lot of words around trust, um, you know, kind of conversation, communication, um, fairness. And now we're working in this world where people are going at home and they're, they're working from home. So how have you found it as, an, as, a, as a tech firm going into this new distributed environment? What are your thoughts on it? And is it something that you're considering utilizing and continuing? I, I think I'd start with the fact that I would... We have been semi-distributed to begin with. I wouldn't say we were a distributed company. We had two offices or three. But Nikka, for instance, has largely worked remotely in Germany. I mean, sometimes it's had someone there with him, but not always. Um, so we, and also, we've always had the acceptance that you can work from home. Um, probably I wouldn't have said originally as much as you wanted, um, but a few days a week. So we did have that level of trust, and therefore we had all the tooling required. So there wasn't this, some companies are obviously going through this thing where they're in a crisis because they haven't even got a thing like Slack in their company. Um, and you need that when you work from home. So we didn't have any of these operational issues. It was kind of a, it was just like working from home a lot. <laughs> um, but I think we've actually found out it works, you know, from our point of view, it works really well. Some people, we've even kind of sent out surveys, ask people, do you think you're more productive, less productive? And more people in the company thought they were more productive 
than than less productive. And as a leader, um, what do you think on that? Do you do you agree? I with think that? I think so. I think so as well. I mean, from and if anything, maybe if anything, I wouldn't say sorry, too productive is not the word I'm looking for. But if anything, people have put in too many hours or are too loose with meeting times. You know, where they say it's almost like, oh, I'm going to put a meeting at uh, seven forty-five because that's the only slot in the day. Um, in the morning, where you probably wouldn't have done that before. And if the person, people will accept it. But so it's actually, if anything, you have to make sure that people do switch off and aren't just actually, you know, don't set your alarm for 7.40 and tell me you can do a meeting at 7.45. <laughs> um, you know, if you're not getting up till 7, no, I'm not going to make you, ask you to change your bed alarm time to, to, <laughs> to do some more work, you know, completely unreasonable of me. So, um, you know, we've actually found that people have been very receptive and actually working too well like that um, and actually trying to keep these, divides between 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 their, their their work life and their personal life, which I think is a problem a lot of people have run into when suddenly working from home. I mean, Nick would work from home a bit more, so I think he didn't probably experience it quite as much, but suddenly for all the people who were in the office every day, discovering that there isn't this boundary between work and home and how you actually, you know, how you do it <laughs> uh, was one of the was one of the big things we had to try and get to, I'd say. Yeah, I think adding to that is um, I think on would would I remember that when you know things started to show you know in March and April that you know this is going to be a problem and we kind of moved uh, we said okay we're going to close offices at the time we still said okay we're going to hold recruitment because it is okay to work remotely because we already know each other because but we didn't feel comfortable remote onboarding. You know, and then we kind of realized, okay, this is going to take longer. So what we're going to do? Uh, so we said, okay, we're just going to have to figure figure this out. And what we realized was that um, it works, but it's more difficult. Okay, you know, that's and I think that um, and I think that's that's the realization here. I think it's um, it is a very powerful tool, and I think that the key point about whether something works or not. If you have a digital product and digital delivery like ourselves, I think if you can manage to allow people's own preferences in terms of, you know, whether you want to do to work at home or in the office or, you know, anything in between probably depends hugely on your home situation. Uh, do you have kids at home? Do you have colleagues at home? Uh, do you have flatmates? Uh, do you have a working station, a work, a quiet workspace? How long do you commute? Um, you know, the are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Do you spend your time um, with a lot of working, a lot with the client, a lot with your team? So all of these things probably change not only for each person, but also for each person over time. And so I think getting that right with some boundaries must and it, I think the data is already in um, must have an impact on productivity about um, happiness uh, contentness and so I think that's going to change not only for us but also for um, you know work environment as a whole for for the positive but you know it's the same way um, you need to find new rules. It's the same way. Just because I have a phone doesn't mean that I don't want to see my parents over Christmas. But you know, it's it's just a different way, and you need to kind of deal with it. And I think we'll 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 find um, around that. You know, it's uh, to me the main point is you need to have more deliberate communication. 
Yeah, deliberate communication, definitely. I mean, I, I find this within, I've asked a question of one of my previous guests and they about leading innovation workshops. And, and he said, I said, is it, you know, how do you do it in a distributed world now? Post COVID said, it's just, you've got to over communicate. <laughs> you've got to work really hard to find a way to communicate with each other. Um, I, I've always worked in a distributed way. Um, headhunting is probably the ultimate distributed job in, in a way. It's because it's all mostly on the phone. Um, and with the advent of video technology and the way that we communicate now, it's just continued. And I've been very fortunate to be able to maintain this distributed way of working and actually embrace the tools that we had around us, like teams that we weren't actually using to their full effect. And all of a sudden, you're kind of forced at the mother of necessity to start using them. And we found similarly, maybe to yourselves, that actually it works really well. And mm. um, Yes, you're right. I'm, I'm probably doing more and more meetings now than I ever was. Um, but so there's a need definitely to monitor and manage the, the work-life balance um, and the mental health relating to that. But um, as a tool for selling, I'm, I'm convinced that um, attracting new sets of talent, other people into an industry or to work for us, um, distributed working is, is a fantastic method for that. So um, I'll be interested to track your, your thoughts. And I, and I think actually that maybe insurtechs have something to teach the big incumbents on this because I'm already seeing that they're, they're going back to the old ways of working, maybe not embracing this opportunity as much as they could do. Mm. So um, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on that. But maybe, maybe we switch gears here a little bit because I've heard so much from the two of you and you've kind of shared so much about your experiences building a company together, working together at the company. Um, but you are are a startup and you've had to go to the money men or women and raise cash. How do you use your relationship? Are you being judged, you think, on the way that you two work together as co-founders on whether or not you're going to raise funds together? Um, has that been your experience? And just tell us a bit about that. Um, now, now, I would say I think the whatever I say needs to be kind of put into context that we we haven't been on a fundraising uh, spree. So, um, you know, kind of taking taking that as a kind of disclaimer. Now, I think that if you if you kind of fundraise, what what people are looking for, right, in in the in the early days is, is can this team deliver, you know, the next milestone of um, that product. Um, and so usually you find that, you know, you want to have uh, single founders are more, uh, have a higher, higher failure rate. So you want to have uh, two complementary founders who have a track record, da 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 And we kind of just tick the boxes. Um, and you also don't want to have too many founders, just kind of from a statistical point of view that the probability of fallout, the probability of, of, of not having, having too many cooks in a kitchen, um, it's just kind of counter to that. Um, and yeah, no, I think that that, that was certainly required because we could deliver our product, um, the initial version, and we could show that we had, you know, a, a history together, that we worked together, that we had a professional career before that, and all of this was relevant for for, for starting Casco. Um, now that I think, yeah, I think that was that that would be the the answer I would say as well is. It really also depends on the stage, you know. So yeah. when we're talking about the very first funding, the very first accelerators we got into, I mean, we've, we're the most accelerated company on the planet, I would have to guess. We've yeah. probably been in about 25 different accelerators. Now, whether how much we took away from each one, I, I, won't, I won't talk about right now. But um, we've, you know, 
originally each one we applied to that was the first one of our first steps was getting to accelerators and each one was this huge deal we'd be up all night like till four in the morning practicing our pitches or changing things you know and of course actually and now we just accelerate uh, for the business contacts they have you know so it's run by a bunch of corporates in a country that we'd like to speak to makes sense to apply for it but it's just the kind of admin job applying for it and that actually i think applies to to fundraising as well um in the sense that at the beginning it was all about the relationship between me and nick the people could see not just the skill sets but what you're seeing right now can they are they interacting in a way that you think they'll still be doing this in four years time or will they as soon as the going gets tough will it all fall apart <laughs> um you know, will it all crumble when, when the, when it, when you know, when it's a harder situation it's in? I think that's what people care about. Of course, as the company moves forward and the stage moves forward, you've proven things. If you have a company and you have businesses and you have revenue and you have customers and uh, you know you have a successful tech stack that people know has worked and has got a track record, you've now proven a lot more. And then the fundraising comes down to much more to other things. Can you? Does the vision make sense? Can you? Do they think you can execute on that? And it's less about. No one's going to say to us now oh, we don't think your company could build a tech stack to Nick. <laughs> you know, because yeah. we have. <laughs> we don't think you could get a customer. Well, we can. But we did but. have in the very beginning, remember? That was when there was this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People, and then, uh, that. <laughs> people were like, yeah, and they tried to break us apart. That was that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so what's next? I mean, this is so good. So you kind of went through your accelerators. You've You've gone out and pitched yourselves you've you know kind of got casco to where it is now what's next for casco what what do you see in terms of the insurance market and what you're going to be solving together tell us about what's next for casco okay so i guess um the i I think what would help is where we kind of want to want to go to with with casco and then um what we think is kind of next in terms of uh our focus on on the insurance customer and then maybe for us as a, as a company so um at casco would we have, our goal is to to build what we call you know the visa of insurance so a insurance network connecting insurers distributors and customers in a single network the way a visa or mastercard you know put merchants acquirers customers um onto onto one single network now what we found was the because we had such big players to enter the market the key point was to figure out how to get insurers onto this network without the network really being in existence um so what we found is pitching ourselves towards insurance companies as insurtech as a service vendor and solving their immediate it problems by massively reducing time and cost to market of digital products. And we've for that we've built our tech stack, you know, a virtual insurance company virtual MGA. Now the second aspect of that now, and then we've we've this will never be done, right? There will always be more, but we have that pretty much sorted. This next one, and that is kind of what we've also really strong is is productizing more fit making more efficient all aspects of our delivery so not just the technology stack but the tooling of our technology so we can do the same thing quicker 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 better quality etc the delivery aspect of it that we can remotely deliver complex projects without a without having to be on site and you know what we've discussed in the beginning our delivery our, our sales model which is you know rapid 
consultation, productization of, of, of their problems. Now, and that's kind of where we are right now. Now, the next stage, and this is something that we've been working on, which has been decelerated because of um, we were planning on doing a, a round pre-COVID uh, to accelerate this is opening our tools, self-service, what we call, but opening our development tools to external developers for, for three reasons. One, we can outsource ourselves because currently we have, there is a capacity constraint on how many things we can do at the same time. If we can outsource this, we can remove that capacity constraint and just deliver more, 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 more. But more importantly, we can also um, allow insurers to manage and take over this part, but also IT vendors, IT consultants, resellers, taking our technology and putting it to the market to really um, scale this up. Um, and I would say that's kind of our next stage of, of where we need to go. Um, and for us, what's next in order to do this is two things. Um, one, we need to position ourselves into an acceleration mode to be very attractive for external funding at valuations that we like to accept. And there's really, because that's, I mean, yeah, we can raise funds. <laughs> you know? um, and, and, and there's really two things we need to do for this. Number one, we need to show 100% growth on a one, two-year timeframe. So we're investing heavily on sales to do this organically with, with our current funds. And to deploy the self-service in, in its first version. And we're doing that as well. Um, and that's kind of what we're, so we're, we're doing the, the same as before more efficiently whilst carving out resources to build the self-service to then really have a step change in, in our model. What that means to us as a company, we've, um, we continued hiring, you know, it's, it's, it's it's uh, uh, investing heavily into sales and this and and this process and becoming ever better at it. Um, but it um, at, as a company, it just means to be really focused, razor focused on on getting these goals because there's also no lifeline. There's no you know the advent of cheap fintech money. I think it's kind of open. Um, if you see some some down rounds uh, that are happening there, so that's kind of what's in it was more of the same faster better um with a clear goal of um getting a step change um once we've hit these goals to kind of prove um because i don't want to tell people i believe this is happening. i'm happy to prove it to them and you know if anyone asks us you know what's different at pasco say just look at my traction tell me another company with that level of resources that has, has been able to Get all these companies onto this single instance. Name me one company. Um, I haven't seen them. So just look at that. Um, and we're happy to put our money where our mouth is. Thank you. Matt, <laughs> any to add to that? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that was a, I think that was a great answer. I'm not gonna... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what, I mean, if you, um, what's the, I mean, let's finishing up now with, with the interview. I mean, if people are here are going to be listening to you um, who are maybe legacy insurers or are, other insure techs or interested parties just tell us like you know maybe if they want to reach out you know maybe what where they can find you um and also maybe the sort of people that you're interested in talking to so the types of people you like to talk to and how they can reach you so i mean you can reach us you know on well we have a website www.casco.io um you know reach us on linkedin um 
happy, you know, reach me on my on my email, um, msurehr at casco.io. Um, and, you know, you can you can find Matt on um, on LinkedIn and, you know, his email, um, you know, mwardle at casco.io. Um, um, pretty much, we like to uh, talk to anyone within an insurance company, an MGA, a broker, or any other large uh, brand that is distributing insurance, you know, banks, etc. Um, if you find yourself in a situation where you see um, several opportunities around creating digital processes, digital products towards your customers, and you lack the IT resources to put these in place in a, in a timely manner. Um, usually, those are you know, product managers, distribution managers within insurance companies, um, but increasingly also you know, digital transformation managers, CIOs. Um, so, so come talk to us. We're, we're happy to share war stories, listen to, to your particular situation and how we, we, we might help and just learn from each other. Um, Matt, I think you you also have um, as a CTO. If um, any other CTOs are out there that are listening to this, are they? Um, would you like to hear from them? Have a chat with them as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, these are conversations that we're actually kind of constantly having with people. Um, a conversation with people about how they're doing things and how they should do things and how we should do things and these kind of conversations. And you know, as, as Nick touched on as well, also anyone within the technology space within insurance companies who'd be interested in speaking about how we're doing things versus. And it's not to say. Speak to us and we'll try and sell you our platform. Um, it's, you know, to say they're happy to have a chat with us. Maybe we can just tell them some things and they'll find that something they can, they want to implement themselves. That's you know, awesome. thank you very much, guys. Well, um, thank you very much for your time, Matt, Nick from Casco.io. I really appreciate hearing your lessons and your experiences in growing a business and the culture of establishing um, a, an insure tech that's delivering really innovative solutions to industry. Um, the way that you guys have worked together and the culture that you've built in working together. I'm sure we can learn a lot from that um, and all of the other experiences you've shared in between. So thank you very much um, for coming on the show. Um, William, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.